Amen. Everybody else, how y'all doing this morning? Amen. It's good to see y'all. I want to talk a little bit about the first Sunday sermon in the church. The first Sunday sermon in the church. And when you think about the first Sunday sermon in the life of the church, it, it, it you have to think about the circumstances in which it was preached. And so it was preached in the it was preached after the arrival of the promise. Of, of God the Father, the Holy Spirit. And so we talked about last week the arrival and how impactful it was. They were all gathered, praying, awaiting the promise that Jesus had given or Jesus had assured them would come. And they were praying and waiting for that promise. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, the sound like a, like, a, like a thunderous and violent and rushing wind pierces through the house and, and the, in which they were staying. And then all of a sudden, fire, like tongues of fire start showing up and, and everybody who was praying and seeking the Lord, all of a sudden now this fire is resting upon them and then they begin to speak in other languages and people that are gathered begin to hear these other languages and everybody's like, what on earth does this mean? What on earth is going on? And then you got a couple of folks that are like, Probably they didn't got a hold of this new wine. You know, it's it's I I, I know it's kind of early in the morning, but you know they could be they could be Presbyterian. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's for my Presbyterian family out there. I love y'all, love y'all, man. If y'all here, uh, but nevertheless, they're like, hey, this is it's pretty early in the morning, and so and so therefore, I don't know what's going on, but maybe they're maybe they're a little drunk, and 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 then Peter comes forward. And so in this sermon, you would think that there has to be a couple of things that are, that are present in this message. And one is, is boldness, because this is something that is very unique, has never happened. And, and now you're about to tell a group of people that were responsible or at least were, um, were condoning the crucifixion of Jesus. You're about to tell these people that the reason that all of this is happening is because of him, right? So boldness has to be present. And it's, it's funny that Peter is the, is the one that has to step up and, and, make, and, and preach this sermon, or at least he's the one who steps up and preaches this sermon. And, and what's funny about that is because just roughly two months ago, a little bit under two months ago, Peter was hiding out and cowering and looking for reasons to say, I don't know Jesus. And all of a sudden now, this guy who was hiding out and looking for reasons to deny him, scared of what may come of him if he says that he's associated with him and he knows him, now all of a sudden it's this same guy who is present and stepping forward to declare this bold message that not only did, did I know him, but, but he's alive. And, he, and not only is he alive, but he's the reason that you see what's happening today happen. And so you see the work already present of the Spirit to, to, to not just give us the ability to proclaim God's glory and to proclaim God's goodness to the world, but you see the work of the Spirit at work to give us the boldness to proclaim it. Makes champions out of cowards, right? But then, but then you, you not only need boldness, but you, but you need an articulate defense. And I think Peter gives us that. In this text, a very articulate defense and a very brief message, which many scholars argue is actually not the whole message, but 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 rather it's what Luke records. It's what it's what Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, actually highlights in the message. And, and in this in this message, Peter gives us 
this first Sunday sermon, he gives us this, this very grounded and powerful defense for the Christian faith that has now bursted onto the scenes in Jerusalem. He starts practical, a practical defense using common sense. He says, verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Peter's point is that it is over a hundred people not known for low moral character. They're, they're adherence to Jewish custom and morality. And, and these hundred plus people are now speaking in unknown languages, languages that they have never learned. They are speaking them, and we have proof because the people that know those languages from all these different places and regions have gathered here for Pentecost, and they hear them speaking about the glory of God in their language, even, even though all these people are from the same place. And Peter says not only that, but it's not even 10 a.m. yet. The third hour of the day was 9 o'clock. It's like, it's not even 10 a.m. yet. Hey, I mean, I know they get turned up, but not that quick, right? At least 12, 1 o'clock, something. But he's like, no, it's not, it's not happening this fast. This is not people filled with wine. This is people filled with power from God. See, sometimes our defense of our allegiance to Christ has, has to simply start with not crazy, right? <laughs> sometimes it just has to start with that. Why, do, why are you even doing this? And, it, and it, sometimes it just has to start with, we're not crazy. There's something going on here that you need to pay attention to. People see Christians sometimes, oftentimes, as anti-intellectual. Sometimes they see them as a little loopy, and, 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 and especially in this internet age, right, where you got, where you got YouTube, you got you know, a million different conspiracies about the origin of scripture showing up on YouTube and a million different conspiracies about the historical veracity of Jesus Christ showing up in your memes on Facebook, right? You get me, now you get pot-shotted about the Christian faith and just like pictures. And you're like, wait a second, I, what's going on? And so people often think Christians are just simply fools. So with all this YouTube and meme scholarship, you should expect a lot of doubters in your life to question what God is doing and what God has done through the power of his gospel and, and through his spirit. And as, as a matter of fact, I was involved in a conversation this week with a good friend of mine whom I've known for a long time. He was a, um, a Christian but has since drifted uh, from the faith, and he was sharing memes and thoughts, and anybody know, everybody know what memes are, right? I, I just want to make sure, okay, I see head nods, the pictures that show up on social media, and then they have a few words, and so, so he's sharing these memes, and, and one of the memes that he shared was um, about how the King James Version um, should, you know, we, 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 we actually adhere to the King James Bible, even though King James was corrupt, and so, and so basically he was calling the question the, the, the accuracy of scripture in his meme. And that particular one caught my eye this week because he's been sharing a lot of them. And, 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 and so this, one, this particular one just caught my eye. And so I decided to share back a few things. And the one thing I shared with is that King James wasn't responsible for the authorship of the Bible. I know we call it the King James Version, but we call it the King James Version because King James actually authorized 
the biblical translation into English of that particular version. And there were several theologians and scholars and, and churchmen and pastors who were involved in that translation. And then he kind of rubber stamped all of the people that gathered to translate it. So that's one interesting point. But the second interesting point about the King James Version is that it's really not, I mean, it's just another version. What you need to focus in on is it focus in on is the Greek and Hebrew. The Greek and Hebrew uh, manuscripts date back all the way to the second century, thousands uh, or hundreds and hundreds of years before King James was born. And so the the people that King James authorized to 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 translate only were taking manuscripts, and they're man the same manuscripts that we have possession of. As a matter of fact, we have earlier. Possess, or we have earlier versions of manuscripts. They didn't have manuscripts that dated back to the second century. We do. And so the English Standard Version and the New International Version and the New American Standard Version actually have manuscripts that go back even earlier than what KJV had. And so therefore I was making the point that, yeah, I mean, you can call in the question KJV's or King James's corruption if you want, but it has nothing to do with the accuracy of the Bible. It's just a common sense defense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you just have to make a common sense defense for the faith, correcting the obvious. But then there are other times when something is not as obvious on the surface, and Peter highlights that next. He begins to make a divine defense using prophecy. He corrects the crowd's assumptions with this second type of defense in addition to the first type of defense. He confronts them with a very uncomfortable truth for a group that is mocking what's happening, especially since the group is a Jewish group. The truth is, is that what they are currently mocking is what their forefathers have waited on for centuries. He says in verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. It's a staggering picture when you consider that they're actually mocking the moment that their ancestors have been waiting on. And now Peter rises up along with all the others that have gathered with him, and he says that this is the moment to fulfill the prophecy that jo Joel spoke about concerning the last days. This is what one of our own, this is what one of our own prophesied concerning. You mock what you claim to have longed for, in other words. You laugh at what our forefathers would have died to hear and see, is what he's saying. I find that interesting that sometimes the very things we laugh and ridicule are the very answers to our plights. The very things that we discount, the very things that we ignore, are the very things that can literally transform our lives for the good and save us for eternity. To highlight the severity of this ridicule, Peter reminds the crowds of the words of the prophet Joel. And so he begins and he shares these words and he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters. They shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. He talks about Peter inserts these words last days. The prophet, the prophet Joel doesn't mention the last days. He says afterwards. But Peter inserts these words 
last days. For Peter and the disciples, this moment represented a beginning and an entrance into the end. This new age marks the time in which God's people are being used by his spirit to prepare the way for his return, primarily through the sharing of the gospel. And the sharing of the gospel all over the world and the sanctification of the church as we pursue holiness both as individuals and, both, and, both, and also as a corporate body. So, so he is talking about this being the beginning of the last days. For, from Pentecost onward, we have been in and are currently in and will continue to be in the last days. That's interesting, right? Because there's a lot of times where you hear some, somebody say, well, man, this is going on, that's going on, this is going on, this is going on, so we must be in the last days. And Peter would answer, we've been in the last days. The arrival of the church and the arrival of the Spirit was a signal of the last day. We live in the age where Christ could return for his bride, the church, literally at any point in time. Now, a lot of people... They, that when we hear that, people speak of the Joel 2 prophecy that Peter is quoting in, in Acts 2 as if it's something that hasn't happened yet. But I don't believe that's what the text is saying because Peter says what you are experiencing this very hour is what Joel spoke of. And he's saying, what he's saying is that this prophecy is being fulfilled today. Now there's also a lot of people that say that Joel's prophecy should be seen in the opposite sense, and meaning that it's totally complete, it's done, it's over with, it has already happened. But I don't believe that he's saying that either, because he says in this very text, in verse 21, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So he's talking about all these things that are happening, sons and daughters, young men, old men, male servants, female servants. He's talking about all these things that's happening right now, but he says they're pointing to what's, uh, what's coming before the day of the Lord comes. You may, you, are you tracking with me so far? So, so, so it's happening, and it's still happening is Peter's point. It's ongoing is the point. Now some may say, how long do the last days last? And the simple answer is, I don't know. God decides. See, others may doubt that God is in fact coming back because he has yet to come back. But Peter also says this when he writes to the churches in his, in his letter, 2 Peter verse three, or chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. He says this to the church. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. We count it as slowness. But listen to what Peter says. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter says, don't count slowness. If you want to count on God's timing, you can't call what God calls. You can't call slow what God doesn't call slow. God calls what you call slow. He calls it patience. As we talked about last week, God steps in and out of time as he so pleases. He's not concerned about your timelines. Does that make sense? We talked about that it literally took millenniums before Jesus even showed up, even though they were waiting from Genesis for him to appear. 
And so therefore, your timeline isn't God's. And so we are in the last days and will continue to be in the last days, living for Christ as we await his return. But he goes on in verses 17 and 18, quoting Joel to describe this grand scale and this grand scope of the Spirit's outpouring. And what he says is that, in, that he shall pour it out on all flesh. And then he goes on, he talks about sons, daughters, old, young, slave, free. Each statement seems to be tied to dreams and, and visions and prophecy. In other words, each statement is about the prophetic. So, so I don't think Peter is trying to say that there's going to be defined roles, like sons and daughters are going to prophesy, but the old men are going to do this. And the young men are going to do that, and they're only going to do that. That's not Peter's point. What's, what Peter's point is, is to talk about how widely distributed God's spirit will be. And that there's not going to be a gender that is confined to. He's going to pour his spirit out on all genders. And there's not going to be a, a, a class of people that is defined to. He's going to pour his spirit out on all classes. There's not going to be an age defined to it. He's going to pour it out on all ages. And it's not going to be a nation that's defined by it. He's going to pour it out on all nations. Peter's point is that the spirit, the spirit spread is going to be unbound. Peter's pointing to this reality that the time has arrived where God's spirit will be unleashed indiscriminately upon all backgrounds, all nations, all genders, all ages, all people. And then he says in verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the sign, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So he could be speaking about the immediate moment or even more broadly what's about to unfold in the coming days of the early church when they begin to see all these signs and wonders take place. But ultimately, Peter's point is this, in quoting, in quoting Joel. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the heart of the signs that are at work on this day that they're experiencing and seeing. This is what they symbolize. This is what they point towards. The beauty of salvation being made available for all who call upon the name of the Lord. No restrictions any longer. See, you have to understand the environment that Joel prophesies these words to us. The environment was the people had just received a devastating invasion of locusts that had destroyed all their crops. Poverty was beginning to seep into the culture, into the climate because of this massive, massive turn of events. And Joel, Joel is calling them to repentance in Joel chapter 1. He's saying, turn back to God. Turn back to God. This, this is a result of God's judgment on the land and God's judgment on his people. But turn back to God. And then when Joel 2 shows, back, uh, shows up, he's saying, okay, if you turn back to God, this is what's going to happen. God is going to pour out his spirit. And so it is a prophecy that reflects grace. It's a prophecy that reflects mercy. The Spirit's arrival and the, the, and the birth of the church is not simply a reflection of what we were due or what we deserve because the sin of the people was continual throughout generations. See, after Joel, they continued to sin. And after Peter, they continued to sin. And we continue to sin. And so this 
promise was a reflection not of what we earned, but this promise was a reflection of grace. This promise was a reflection of mercy. See, what we deserved was what the people in Joel chapter 1 got. Destruction of both physical and spiritual prominence. What we deserved was wrath. What we, what, what we deserved was destruction, but what we received was a second chance. What we received was the sending of the Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin, to receive our destruction. What we received was the gift of the precious Holy Spirit who is ever-present with you and I to comfort you and to comfort me who is ever-present with you and I to empower and embolden us in our fear and cowardice to live on mission for God, who is ever-present with you and I to convict us and strengthen us to flee from temptation. What we received was the gift of the church, the community of God, the people who were called to bear with one another and to inspire one another and to continue in the, to continue in the faith with one another of people that were called to rejoice with one another when we rejoice and to weep with one another when we weep. See, these are all the gifts that God gave us instead of what we deserved. And so when Peter prophesies, that's what he's pointing to. But he not only makes a defense using prophecy, he makes a defense using the gospel. What Peter does in the first verses of this text is really set a stage for the most important thing in the text, which is the gospel message. It is an evangelistic message in every sense of the word. Peter sets the record straight, not only by, by debunking the ideas that these men would be drunk as early as 9 a.m., that the prophets had promised that this day would come, but by also showing that what is taking place is truly all about Jesus. What is taking place is all about the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe. So this is what we got to take away from this, right? This is what we need to take away from this this morning, is that the Pentecost message that Peter preaches, the practical defense that he talks about saying, hey, these folks aren't drunk, the divine defense that he brings up saying, hey, this is, the, this is what Joel prophesied about and tying it back to prophecies that were centuries ago, that that was a way for Peter to get to the greater defense, which was the gospel. See, the common sense test and the prophetic and miraculous defenses, they only serve in setting the stage to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I've often seen it done where we do the common sense or we do the prop, we concern ourselves with the prophecies and the miracles, but you have to understand that none of that should be primary. It's getting to the gospel that's primary. And that's what Peter does. Peter gets to the gospel. In verse 22, he talks about the divine proof of Christ. In other words, that Christ is not just some man. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Christ, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He says you were there, or at least you heard about it. You saw what Jesus did. You heard what Jesus did. This was God's affirmation, God the Father's affirmation of him. Are you tracking this was God the Father saying, this isn't just some ordinary man, but this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he gives divine proof about Christ, but then he talks about this definite plan of God in verse 23. 
In verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Peter does here is basically say that the death of Christ is not something beyond the control of God. It is something orchestrated by God for the redemption and the salvation of the world. From the very beginning of our recorded biblical history with the fall of Adam and Eve, God says in so many words, I got this. From the very beginning, he's saying, I got this. You see in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fall, God begins to pronounce judgment and curse on mankind itself. God says in verse 14 of that chapter, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and thus shall eat all the days of your, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what is he talking about? Millenniums before Jesus shows up on the scene, God the Father pronounces that devil, serpent, that there shall be a foot on your head. And that foot comes from the seed of the woman. What is he talking about? Well, see, but before Jesus even shows up on earth, we come to know that the seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. And that foot is him conquering the devil, conquering the serpent. But he says that the serpent shall bruise that foot that's being placed on his head. And what does that mean? Well, it means that millenniums before Christ ever showed up, God the Father was pronouncing that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed, the offspring, Christ. And how would he bruise him? Through his death, through his crucifixion. These words were describing Jesus' death that would lead to the conquering of Satan. Jesus himself talks about his death. In John chapter 10, he tells us that I don't, I lay my life down for the sheep as I desire to, basically. He says, for this reason, the father loves me. And because I lay my life down that I may take it up again, no one takes it from me. This wasn't by accident. This was according to the definite and uh, the, the definite plan of God. Jesus says that it was the charge that I received from the Father to lay down my life. In other words, it wasn't by accident. It was because the Father told me to do this. Peter, in declaring this as the absolute plan of God, is pointing to the crucifixion as having purpose. And that purpose is to bring us to salvation. Amen? He talks about in verses 24 through 32, the power of the resurrection. And he, takes a, a, he takes David, he takes someone that they love and they hold dear. He knows the Jewish people hold David in high regard. And he says, listen, 
David said in, in, in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. And what Peter says is, listen, David died. David died. He was buried. And so therefore... This text or this, these words that David speak about not letting your Holy One see corruption must be talking about somebody else. Who is he talking about? David was telling us about the one to come that came from his own lineage, Jesus. Jesus was the Holy One who would not see corruption. Jesus was the, was the one who would not have to remain in the place of the dead. Jesus was the one who would rise from the grave. And he's saying, basically what Peter is saying is that think about how great David is. Think about how much how, the high regard that we hold for David and, come, and realize that even David is in the grave, but Jesus is not. He's risen from the grave, making him even greater than our greatest making him a king above our king. Are you tracking with that? He's pointing them to how the power of the resurrection validates the power of Christ. He says in verse 33 through 35 that, that therefore God has exalted him at the right hand and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Listen to that. He says, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Peter says, who do you think that was? Whose Lord that who, who does David refer to as his Lord? Say he refers to Jesus. And that when Jesus ascended into the heavens in Acts chapter 1, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that his ascension points to the reality that he's going to take a seat with God. God the Father. And that he's going to remain in the right hand of God the Father until this whole thing comes together. Until the last days are complete, until the kingdom is restored completely to his people. And so he's pointing out all of these things to drive home the reality that Jesus Christ is the one whom you must turn to. He says, you crucified him in verse 36. You did. You crucified him. But now... Here's your offer to turn. We've sinned against him. It isn't just Israel. Are you tracking? It isn't just the Jews that are gathered in Acts chapter 2. We've sinned against him. We've turned our back on God on countless occasions. We've had his ways. We've had his law. We've had his, we've had his moral standard, and we've said no to it, decided to do things our own way. We've decided in our own hearts that our wisdom is more appropriate for our time than God's. It's not just Israel. It's all of us. And so yet, even though that was all of our testimony, Peter is preaching a sermon, not just to Israel, but he's preaching a sermon to us saying, turn back. 
saying he came and he died for you even though you were the one who crucified him. But you crucified him not even knowing that it was a part of his plan to die for you in order that you would be restored, in order that you may turn back and be saved. And so in the last verses with this, with this sermon, this bold defense, you don't judge a bold defense by, by the boldness of the speaker. You don't judge a bold sermon by the elegance of the words. You don't judge a bold sermon by the construction of the points, even though the points are fire in this text, right? But you don't judge a sermon by any of that. You judge a sermon by the power of the Spirit at work in the hearts of men to bring people to repentance. Verse 37 the men and women that are gathered, they cry out and they say, the word says, now they heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were, they were convicted, exceedingly convicted. And they said to Peter and the, rest of the, uh, and the rest of the apostles that were gathered, brothers, what shall we do? What do we need to do to make this right? What do we need to do to, to be on the right side of this God? What do we need to do in order to respond to this work that he has done through his son? And Peter says, repent. Repentance is a turn. It's a turn from your way. Turn to God's way. It's a turn from doing things in that, that are right in your eyes and doing things that are right in his. It's a turn from being self-governed to being God-governed. It's a turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in him. Repentance is a turn. Repentance is forgiveness. It's part of forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. It's an active turn. Some people, when we talk about faith in Christ, we talk about, well, ask the Lord for forgiveness. But repentance is more than asking God for forgiveness. Repentance is turning to God. And repentance is more than just turning away from sin. Repentance is turning to God. See, most of the time we are thinking about our repentance in terms of what we're losing. I got to turn from this. I got to turn from that. I got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing that. But folks, repentance is more than what you turn from. Repentance is what you turn to. Repentance is turning to God. You know, it's not like, it's not like you're turning from a, a, a bag of nickels to a bag of quarters. You're turning from a bag of nickels to infinite riches. Do you understand that? Amen. That's what repentance is. It's turning from what feels like riches, but is extremely limited, extremely perishable, and extremely temporal. And it's turning to an infinite, eternal, endless God. And when you view it in that way, then repentance no longer feels like drudgery and duty. But repentance becomes delight. Repentance becomes what I've longed for. What I've always needed and I didn't know, right? What I've missed my whole life but just couldn't simply put my finger on. That's what repentance becomes. 
And so, and so that's why these men are saying, brothers, what on earth do we need to do? Because they've realized that in that moment by God's spirit, they've realized that what they have is not sufficient. That's what repentance is. And this is the aim of gospel preaching. This is the aim of a Sunday sermon is to help us all realize that what the world is giving us is not sufficient. Our jobs aren't enough. The prize in in our possessions isn't enough. Money isn't enough. Only Christ is enough. We want to leave you with knowledge. We want to leave you with encouragement to continue in the faith. We want to leave you with more connection to your brothers and your sisters. But folks, more than anything, when we get up here on Sunday mornings and preach, we want to leave your heart leaping at the ideal of turning daily to Jesus. We want to leave your heart thinking that I would be a fool to turn any where else. Peter says that this is the promise for you and your children, verse 39, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so Peter points to the power at work by the Spirit, that the Spirit is literally the one who is pricking you and turning you to himself. Who defines this group that comes to God? Peter says God does. He calls you to himself. He's pulling you in. Some of y'all came in kicking and screaming. Right? You know it. I mean, I did. He pulled you in and kept pulling you in, even though you tried to stray away, right? He's, he's, like, he's like, God is like the dad walking around with this baby leash, right? The baby's running around trying to get away from him, and God's just like snatching you back in. That's what the Spirit is doing in our lives. It's just constantly showing us how much we need him, constantly causing us to come back. It says on that day, 3,000 people were added. What a sermon, right? Three people get saved after my sermon, man. I'm, tur- I'm, I'm doing breakdancing after church, you hear me? You can ask Candy. I'm, probably at, I'm, I'm at home in the kitchen doing my little turntable style dance. I'm, I mean, I'm excited. 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. But it wasn't because of Peter, folks. It was because of Jesus wasn't what Peter did, it was what the Spirit did. And it's what he continues to do, amen? Amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray.